Well, uh, books about buildings, books about buildings can be very boring, let's face it. And books about building buildings can be even more boring. And having children, I should know, I've read Bob the Builder books with my children over the years. The question's always asked at some point, can we fix it? And invariably the answer is yes, yes we can. In fact, every episode they can, they never fail. At least with a real building, you've got that sort of excitement and unknown as are they actually going to finish the job? Are they actually going to make it to the end? But with books like Bob the Builder, unfortunately, you know the end before the beginning. Now, to be fair, in Ezra, we are at least given that. There are points where we're unsure what's going to happen, humanly speaking. The book is about building the temple, and we're unsure at points, humanly speaking, whether it's going to be built. But essentially, it's a book about building. Can they build it? And we'll discover by the end of the book, yes, they can, but it's hairier points as we go through the story. Now, I discovered this week that Ezra actually used to be joined with Nehemiah as a larger book just called Ezra. But to be honest, I'm not up for doing both of them at the same time after doing Samuel together, Kings together, and Chronicles together, so we're going to do them separately. We're going to look at Ezra this week and then Nehemiah uh, next time. And the book splits neatly into two sections. One to six deals with the return from exile and the building of the temple. Seven to ten deal with Ezra's journey to Jerusalem and the subsequent issues when he gets there. And in the book there are seven letters as we go through. No, it's not Revelation, don't worry. But there are seven letters here. They're much more boring, probably, than the ones in the book of Revelation. These ones are sent back and forth to essentially a planning department uh, about the building of the temple. Might sound boring, but it's significant nonetheless. No other copies survive of those letters, but even skeptics agree that they're probably accurate, as who would fake essentially a correspondence about planning. I should say, though, as we look through the book, the book came alive to me in a very different way when uh, we were doing it in life groups uh, just before the pandemic when we were dealing with things like the planning department and uh, local council and things about the change of use of this building. As we were going through, it was interesting that two and a half millennia later, many of the issues with building things and bureaucracy have remained the same. And the devil has not radically changed his strategy uh, in that area or all over this time. Anyway, into the book. First of all, we see the return, the return the main big event of this book, the one that's there in the, the foreground really all the way through, is the beginning of the return from exile for the southern kingdom, Judah. The southern kingdom is coming back from Babylon, that's where we're up to in the Bible story. They've been sent away for their sin, and now they're coming back after King Cyrus has said that they can return. It didn't happen all at once, but it begins with Ezra and Nehemiah, the book that follows. God stirs the hearts of the Persian king Cyrus, and he begins to send God's people home. He gives an edict to say that they can go back to their country. Now, humanly speaking, this was a change uh, between regimes, between the Babylonians, who favoured sort of homogenising, regularising, and making everything the same. Turning everyone into Babylonians, that was their idea. Come on, we'll turn you into a Babylonian. The Persians favoured much more of an each-to-their-own approach. Whereas Babylon wanted to enforce everybody worshipping their gods and following their ways, 
The Persians favoured everyone worshipping their own god, as long as they prayed uh, for the king and made offerings for the king. They wanted every god, every religion on board, just under the Persian banner. So they did this with other nations as well. So Cyrus decrees that those who've been taken away from their lands by the Babylonians can return home. They can rebuild their old temples and re-establish their old unique identities. So long as they don't rebel against Persia, as long as they remain in the fold. And not only that did they send them home, but they sponsored the building of these temples, as is the case in Ezra with God's people. And these people begin to return home to build the temple. Ezra gives us a list in chapter 2 of the people who returned home at that time, who began the work of the work. The northern kingdom, though, don't return. They don't come back. We don't read their story of return because they don't. They are lost uh, to this day. But, and in fact, Ezra himself doesn't return home until the second part of the book, starting in chapter 7. It's one of those weird books where you only meet the main character halfway through the book. But Ezra is a priest in the line of Aaron. And he asks the king, who at that point by now is Artaxerxes, uh, if he can return to Jerusalem. And Ezra's purpose, he sets out in chapter 7, verse 10. I'll read it to us. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. If I can find the right page. He says, But Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what he's going to do. He's going to go back, he's going to teach the law of the Lord, he's going to get the nation in order, that's his purpose. And he returns back to Jerusalem, brings some of the Levites and priests back with him, and in fact he sends back to Babylon for more Levites and priests to help him with the work. And it's significant that Ezra is a priest, because this is what really makes Ezra different from Nehemiah. Both the books about the return, both are roughly the same time. I mean, Ezra actually makes a cameo, if you like, uh, in Nehemiah. But the focus of Ezra is on the temple. That's the big thing as we go through, the temple and temple life. You could really say that in the return, there are three areas of life that are re-established after the return. The political side in Nehemiah, the prophetic side in Haggai and Zechariah, and here, Ezra is the priestly side of the nation that's re-established. The focus is rebuilding the temple in 1 to 6, and the rebuilding of temple worship in 7 to 10. The temple is a massive deal in the Bible, and to the Jews. I don't think we can quite get our heads around how central it was to be for the part of, of God's people. For them, in the Bible, it was the special place where God's presence dwelt. It was the one place of sacrifice for the people. And it was a meeting place of heaven and earth. And so for them to be in exile, to be away from the temple, in fact for the temple to have been destroyed, they were left with all sorts of questions. Well now the temple's destroyed, where do we go to meet with God? How can we have our sins forgiven if there's no altar for the sacrifices? Who would mediate when there are no priests sort of working in the temple? What does it even look like to be a Jew in those sorts of situations? So the rebuilding of the temple and the restarting of the priestly temple life is a massive deal for the people. We've sort of got used to the fact now that the Jews don't have a temple. 
But at that point, it would have been um, radically different. They wouldn't know what to do. So they begin to rebuild the temple. That's not to say it was an easy ride. The building of the temple is opposed by some, ridiculed by others. And interestingly, it's the exclusive claims of God's people that causes a big part of the opposition. So if you turn over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, it's quite amazing really what happens. Let me read them to you, just after the reading we had before. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, southern kingdom, heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, now you're going to be thinking, let's destroy it, yeah? No. Let us build it with you. For we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counsellors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until even the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. See what's happening there? This group come along. We worship the same God as you, as you do. These are the people who come to be known as Samaritans in the New Testament. They basically say, well, let's work together on this. We're basically the same, aren't we? We worship together, we can do, you know, we can worship God together here, can't we? Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what a lot of folks say nowadays, doesn't it? Come on, let's worship together, let's do stuff together. We worship the same God, basically, don't we? But the Jews say no. No, we can't work together on this. The Samaritans were claiming that they were the same, but the Jews knew that they were not. They knew that the Samaritans had a dodgy version of worship, but they only had the first five books of the Bible, they rejected everything else. They had a dodgy idea of God, and they built their own sort of temples and things to worship him. So they won't build a temple with them, they won't work with them. And so, persecution starts. Not from outside the land so much, but inside, so to speak. It's not those claiming a different religion, but those claiming the same religion who are upset with what's happening. <clears throat> it's those who claim to worship the Lord, Yahweh, who write off to the authorities to try and stop them building the temple, because they won't let them join in. It's those who are upset with the exclusive nature of the claims of God's people that are the most vehement opponents of the work. They oppose the Lord's work in the name of the Lord. That's basically what they're doing. How bizarre. And yet, it's not, is it? How often in the history of the church has the most vehement opposition to the gospel come from those who claim the name of Christ? I fully expect that if persecution and opposition comes over the next few years to our church, it will not come from other faiths or secularists. It will be from those naming the name of Christ upset that we're not joining in with them. That we won't stand alongside them and say that we're basically the same, believe the same things and preach the same things. Now don't hear me wrong, that doesn't mean that we opt for isolation. 
There are many things that we can do together with all sorts of different groups, whatever the name above the door. But alone, but with the Jews, we have to say no when it comes to matters of true worship. And like the Jews, that will probably make us unpopular. And it will mean we'll probably face a degree of opposition. But from Ezra, we see that this is normal. That's been the case for thousands of years. Because of the claims that we have about the uniqueness of Christ and the uniqueness of his sacrifice. And whereas in Nehemiah the opposition to the building of the temple comes in the form of the threat of violence, Ezra actually feels more like our times, actually. In Nehemiah, you know, they've got a fight with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other as they build the walls of Jerusalem. But how does the conflict take place in Ezra? It comes in the form of bureaucracy. Seven letters sent back and forth about permission to build the temple. You see, the devil may sometimes prowl around like a roaring lion, but sometimes he puts on a suit and pushes pencils like an office monkey. That's really what he does. Frustrating the plans of God's people or persecuting them with paperwork. Visas, passports, planning permission. You talk to missionaries about what are the big challenges that they face. They're often the things where they're frustrated. All these things can be used to persecute God's people, to treat them differently. I already know Christians in this country are struggling to adopt due to their Christian faith. It's paperwork, isn't it? It's bureaucracy rather than bullets. But that's the devil's choice of weapons here. But the encouragement in Ezra is that we see God is able to overrule here. Sir Humphrey is not bigger than the sovereign Lord, is he? And he sees that the temple is built. He overcomes the opposition that comes through those seemingly normal means. And there is that positive side. The temple does get built. But there is a negative side too. So finally, the disappointment. That's the final thing we see in the book of Ezra. The disappointment. One of the big themes that's often missed when looking at the return is the disappointment of the returnees. In the passage that we had read, the old folk were weeping out loud as they saw the temple foundation laid. They were not tears of joy but tears of grief, of pain, of disappointment. The only time in the Bible that that word is used for tears of joy is in Genesis, when Joseph weeps when he sees his brothers. But the way here that it's contrasted with the shout of joy really points to the fact that these are sad tears as they see the temple foundation laid. As they see the foundation laid, they're probably thinking, this is not the temple Ezekiel promised. I know we haven't done Ezekiel yet, but Ezekiel promised a huge one with streams of living water flowing from inside the temple. It's clear, actually, as they lay the foundation, it's not even going to be as impressive as Solomon's temple. And partway through, the people give up building, and God has to send Haggai and Zechariah to get them back building. That's what their letters are written about. And noticeably, at the end, when the building is finally built, there's something missing. I'm not talking about the Ark of the Covenant, that's not even mentioned. But I'm talking about the glory of the Lord. Do you remember the glory of the Lord descended on the tabernacle as a cloud so they couldn't even get in it when they finished building the tabernacle? The glory of the Lord descended on Solomon's temple as a cloud when it was complete. But there's no cloud of glory. There's no God's glory descending on the temple in Ezra. They offer sacrifices, they celebrate Passover, but the glory of the Lord does not descend on the temple. 
The book rather ends on a depressing note as Ezra lists off the returnees that were guilty of intermarriage with pagan women. Even the priests he lists off. Clearly they do not have the new hearts that would obey God's promised law uh, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now I know we have more books to go, but as an ending period for the Old Testament, actually it's really depressing, isn't it? We don't really have a third high spot in Scripture. You know, Joshua's in the land, yay, big high spot. Solomon in the temple, yay. But the return, it's a bit of a damp squib, really. We're left waiting for the glory. We're left waiting for a glorious return home with a glorious temple and a faithful high priest, all the things that are promised in the prophets. And we don't see them. But, thankfully, that's what we see in the New Testament. Jesus is that glorious temple, the place that we go to meet with God. He is enveloped in a cloud, both at his transfiguration and his ascension. He speaks of his body as the temple which would be destroyed and then rebuilt after three days. He says to his disciples, speaking of himself in Matthew 12, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, speaking of him. He's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is tabernacled amongst us. So Christ is that glorious temple that it's looking forward to, with God's glory. And now, further on in the New Testament, we are his temple. Now I could point you all over the New Testament for that. But it also means, incidentally, that we don't need another temple. All those questions that the Jews were asking are answered in us. We don't need another Ezra. Jesus now builds his temple, his church, us. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we join in with the temple building, as we see in Ezra, as we build one another up. As we speak the truth in love to one another, as we serve one another, as we minister to one another, we do the work of temple building. When we do that, we're fulfilling what is spoken in the book of Ezra. We also do the priestly duties that are spoken of. We now have a faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus. We spoke about it this morning, we're now a kingdom of priests. We're involved in the work as we build up, and as we build others up, we build, uh, are built up ourselves, and as we build others up as living stones into the temple. That's the way the New Testament talks about it. And that kind of building is way more exciting than a Bob the Builder book. Though in one sense it is as predictable. Because Christ is the builder of the church, ultimately, isn't he? And he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is the builder. Can he fix it? Can he build it? Yes, he can. And he will use us as we speak the truth in love to one another, as we help apply the glorious gospel of Jesus to one another's lives. So let's pray. As we do temple work, as we do building, we don't get bored with that. But instead we look with uh, excitement at the certainty that Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he is the place that we come to meet with you. Father, thank you that he is the place of that sacrifice. And Father, thank you that he is that place where you dwelt physically in the world. Father, thank you that we can come to him. Father, we don't have to go to a physical location across the world somewhere. 
But Father, we can meet with you anywhere because he has given us his spirit. Father, thank you that we can enjoy his presence anywhere. And Father, thank you for the way that all these things are fulfilled in him. Help us to rejoice in that and to join in in building the church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.